A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to your book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. The special edition of my novel Insatiable is now available for your book listeners to pre-order from Waterstones. Apple, Waterstones and The Independent have chosen it as one of their top novels of 2021. The special edition includes a bonus scene, an essay about sex and creative writing, and it has sprayed edges. Waterstones also have exclusive signed copies of my new novel Careering, which is coming in March. Stylist, Good Housekeeping and Sheer Lux have all picked it as one of their top books for 2022. Now, on to today's guest, Susanna Clark. Susanna won the Women's Prize for Fiction this year for her novel Piranesi, in which the eponymous hero never leaves his home, because a whole beautiful universe is contained within it. How apropos. We talked about imagination, Narnia, magic and more. I felt so warmed and nourished by this conversation and utterly privileged to have witnessed Susanna's wisdom. I hope you do too. The first thing I must tell you before I forget is on Friday, I interviewed my friend, the writer Janina Matthewson, and she was talking about how much she loves and adores your books. And I think, you know, when Piranesi came out, she sort of took time off and went away but also she loves um the ladies of grace adieu and i think that's her most gifted book and most bought book and it's the one which what she loves to do is buy copies and give them as gifts and then kind of annotate them and present them to her favorite people with her own sort of marginalia which so she's been buying many 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 copies of it that's amazing i've never heard of anyone doing that but it's a lovely lovely idea Oh, that's great. I suppose one of the first things I wanted to ask you was, as a reader, what was your first experience of the magical and the strange? What was the first fictional universe you encountered that made you think of alternative possibilities? I think it's going to have to be C.S. Lewis's Narnia. I mean, I'm sure that before I read the Narnia books, I'd read other fairy tales and sort of folk tales. But that was, as far as I remember, the first book, which had such a complete universe that you just wanted to go and live there. I think the idea of talking animals is very seductive. The idea of being able to communicate with with creatures. And he does that so well, I think. Uh, and I think that's that's very attractive to a lot of children. And it's very attractive to older people. It's very attractive to me now, the idea of being able to talk to a dog 
or a pig or something. So I, I think there was that. And, and also just the whole thing of maps and castles and fauns and magic. It was just this wonderful world. And it kind of, I think I must have got to the C.S. Lewis books because my dad was a Methodist minister and so was very, um, my parents were kind of interested in Lewis's theological Christian angle but my mum was also had also done English at Oxford and so she'd heard C.S. Lewis lecture and she used to tell people that he'd once opened a door for her and um, that I think so I always I suppose he was also the first writer that I knew about sort of as a writer because I think my parents were kind of interested in him as a person these were the first books where I was aware of, like, an author being behind them. So you had an idea of, of this person before you read the books? I don't know. No, probably not before. But um, this is a long time ago. So the order in which things come, I won't, I won't be uh, able to, to say. But it certainly, I think I had an early idea of these books having had an author. And also... There, this I love the the sort of voice of those books, which is sort of friendly but a bit brisk. Mm. It's an it's it's an author. He often breaks off and just talks directly to the reader. There's a line which I always love in I think uh, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, where they arrive at an island and they go into a very, very spooky house and Lucy has to go up the stairs into a long corridor and all she knows is that there is a magician in this house and he's invisible, possibly sleeping, possibly dead, but she has to go and make him visible. And it's very, it's sort of scary. And he describes walking down this corridor and at one point she gets a shock because there's a mirror on the wall but the mirror has hair and a little beard. So your face suddenly appears within this bearded mirror. And Lewis just says, what this was for, I cannot tell you because I am not a magician. And it's sort of that kind of rather brisk, like a teacher that you like, but, but can be quite sharpish, but is basically very, very friendly. I suppose I also got from the Narnia books the idea that the narrator could could almost be a person, even if you didn't know who they were, which is kind of what happened with Jonathan Strange and Mr Norrell. People said to me, who is the narrator? And I thought, I've no idea. I never thought about it, really. You can have this voice. And I always I always loved in Jane Austen's books the, the part where she talks to you directly. She'll suddenly do these quite sort of almost postmodern jokes where um, there was this idea in the early 19th century that reading novels was kind of rather an immoral thing, rather in the way watching too much television or too many hours and hours of Netflix is thought of bad, not a very good thing now. Reading novels for hours and hours was not a very good thing. And, and she sort of says at one point, well, if you think I'm going to turn round like a lot of all have my my heroine turn round like the heroines of a lot of authors and look at, pick up a book and say, oh, it's a novel and cast it aside. She sort of says, I'm not going to do that because I think I think novels are wonderful. And if 
you know, if a novelist cannot support her own sister and brother novelists, then where where can we expect to find support? Something like that. She says it much, much better than that. It's such a signal that she's on the side of the reader as well. And I was thinking, I'd never thought that about C.S. Lewis, but it's really struck me how I think reading about a magical universe can be quite frightening. And to have a voice, as you said, that a friendly teacher, but someone who is in authority, who has control and even has control over the things he doesn't understand and being able to say, well, I don't know what the mirror was, but there it is. I think it's really, really comforting. I think that is part of what makes a book propulsive, that you can sort of trust and relax into it and know that you are being led by a person who wants you on their team. Yes, who's going to be your companion. I don't know whether I actually think of him as someone who is in control. I mean, obviously he was... But it's almost the thing about him saying, well, there was this the, the mirror and I don't know what it was for. It's almost like he's channeling this the story. The story is the important thing. And he's I mean, obviously, I wouldn't have put it like this at that stage. But now you can sort of say, well, he's sort of channeling the story. And even he may not know where all the elements come from. The story is the primary thing. Do you think you have a greater insight into how he might have done it or positioned himself as a a novelist and a teller of stories, say, compared with when you read those books the first time? You learn your craft, which is how to kind of... I don't know whether I do learn, really. I I think what happens to me is I'm very aware at some points when I'm writing of another book kind of coming to me. I'll suddenly think of 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 a book, possibly one I read when I was a child, and I'll think an image will come to me from that book and that sort of seeps into the writing that I'm doing now. In Piranesi, he found messages in the he lives in a huge house of possibly infinite and finds messages and some of the messages for various reasons have been partly erased and I think what I was thinking of at that point or the image that came quite consciously into my mind was again the voyage of the dawn treader there's a character not a particularly nice character at the beginning, who gets accidentally turned into a dragon. But it's partly his own fault because he he sleeps in a dragon's lair and he finds all this treasure and he thinks of how he's going to steal this treasure. So as he says, he slept on a dragonish bed and was thinking dragonish thoughts and then he became a dragon. And... He needs to now try now and tell his friends who are sleeping on the shore of this island what has happened to him. So he, Lewis describes him sort of trying to write a message to them on the sand with his claws, but claws aren't really made for writing and he treads over some of the message and he wipes it out with his his tail as he's going along and this message ends up quite funny it's sort of got oh bother in the middle of it I mean it's all very (laughs) very kind of 1940s 1950s schoolboy but it's um it was very it was very sweet and very funny and and so 
when you're writing, I think bits of other books drift into your mind. And I think that's quite an important thing. They kind of lead you some way. But whether I've got any insight into how he did that, I'm not sure. He had such, he had, I mean, all of us have our whole lives behind our stories. And obviously his life and mine were very, very different. And yet, you know, your life is made up a little bit of, of his life or his story. That's something, you know, an mm. image, an idea. And it, I think it's like um, sort of something molecular, isn't it? And I was thinking about, you know, Veronese and the sea and how the, the information that bodies of water sort of store and gather and how sometimes I think of humans as bodies of water that are, you know, storing and gathering these drops of all the stories that we're, we're made of the stories that we absorb. Yes, and... And we can also change the stories. The points at which the story seems to leave you, it can be very, very disorientating. I once was in a, a discussion group and a woman, a young woman who I didn't know, and I don't think I ever saw her again, was talking about, we were talking about the importance of narrative, the importance of stories. And she said she'd been ill she'd had some illness I don't know what it was and it, she said it wasn't until she could tell herself a story about it that she was able to I can't remember whether she said reconcile herself to the illness or get better or possibly a mixture of the two but she needed to have she thought she needed to have a narrative if it was just this inexplicable mysterious thing she couldn't really cope with it uh, but she had to have a narrative, and I can relate to that quite strongly. That yeah. makes a, a lot of sense, and I suppose it comes back to just thinking about the um, this idea that if we live as dragons and think of dragonish thoughts, we'll become dragons. We are we're yes. so permeable, and we're so yes. malleable and mutable. But the good news then is that that's always you can always come back from that. Yes, you sleep, sleep in a better place. <laughs> and sort of try to turn your mind to sort of rather different thoughts. That's going to have an effect as well. I'd love to hear more about like when you read, how often you read, if it's something that you like to do every day, if you can, or if you have periods of ebb and flow with it. I think ebb and flow, definitely. I think for a long time, when I was quite ill, I found it all very, very difficult to read at all. Just the sort of... Con the concentration, I had a lot of what brain fog and just that concentration was just something I couldn't come up with. But then I would also sort of get sort of get gripped by something and become quite obsessed by certain books. I started reading Reginald Hill's D.L. and Pascoe detective novels, which if you've only ever seen the detect the TV series. They're really nothing like the TV series. They're, they can be quite extraordinary, particularly the later ones, and quite literary. One is a sort of version of Jane Austen's unfinished novel, Sanditon, except with lots and lots of murders in it. Um, and various others link into to an obscure 19th century writer called Thomas, Tom, I'm not going to get this right, Thomas Lovell Beddoes, I think, about whom I know very little, except clearly from, from these D.L. and Pascoe books, he was, 
they had quite an extraordinary sort of imagination. Um, but anyway, I was I I sort of started reading these and I just read them one after the other, and there's lots. And at one point I was getting through them at the rate of one a day, and these are not thin books. I think in the middle of all of this there was Christmas. And I was thinking, well, the shops are going to be closed and the internet, they won't be doing anything. And have I got enough of these books to get me through Christmas? <laughs> it was very, very odd. But um, I think I think sort of illnesses can make you, you can sort of have these little patches of total obsession. I met a woman at a, a hospital who had something similar and she said that she'd started making paper models of houses and she just hadn't been able to stop making paper models of houses and I thought yes I know what that's like so I, I would love to read every day and I sort of make plans of oh I'll read a poem a day and that will be wonderful and it'll get me into poetry but it, it doesn't really happen I have to say and I find very often that I've got energy for writing or reading but not both so I kind of have to have to make a choice which is a bit sad. Well that's interesting though that it's sort of you have got so much of your brain to kind of to use in a story whether that's your story or someone else's. Yes I think so but I also think it's just sort of the energy that it takes to move your your eyes along the um, and your brain along the line of words yeah I sort of have a finite amount of that um I can remember years and years and years ago when I was a student hearing John Irving read a bit of what I think was probably the world according to Garp it had just come out while I was at university and he's fascinating but he said that a lot I'm sure he said this I hope I'm not misquoting him that a lot of the writers he knew had been passionate readers as children and that was kind of the important thing and I think that was that was me as a child I was in a world of books the world of books was much safer than the world outside so that was where I retreated to and I do like to retreat there now but um but I don't seem to get as much reading done as I want. Where were you getting your books? Were there lots of books at home? Were you going to a library? Do you have any memories of, because I remember this, get, you know, you get a book token and choosing a book and it being sort of your own money, theoretically, or your own token. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, my family were very much of the book token giving to children sort of people. And there were quite a lot of books at home, I think. Um, and I so I grew up surrounded by books, but a lot of them, I guess, were my father's books. So they were sort of kind of theology and church history. They weren't terribly attractive to a child, I have to say. And the, my mum's books, also, you have to think that I grew up, I guess, in the 60s and 70s. So my parents' books were sort of from the 40s and 50s, which meant that the books they'd bought still came under wartime rationing. So they were quite dull objects to look at because they'd been made in the cheapest way possible and they were these quite sort of dowdy colours. So I used to, fortunately, between the ages of about six 
and 12, something like that, we lived so close to a library that I could walk there on my own. I just walked down the back of the, the house and then across a um, pedestrian crossing, zebra crossing, and I was there. And it was a very good library, Kids Grove in Staffordshire. It's a very good library and it had a very good children's section. And I used to, I spent a lot of my childhood in that library. Um, I got to know the books really well. I would read Rosemary. I, I loved historical fiction. So I would read Rosemary Sutcliffe and Cynthia Harnett. And they were mostly women writers, I think. And um, Barbara Leone Picard is a name I remember. I cannot really remember her books, but her name has stayed with me. Um, so historical fiction and a lot of sort of magical books. There were some books that were the Book of Dwarves and the Book of Giants and the Book of Witches and the Book of Wizards. And they all had um, these beautiful illustrations by an illustrator called Robin Jacks. And he drew all these fantastical creatures in this wasn't quite realistic. It was very, very detailed and absolutely beautiful. And were they presented as stories or were they more like sort of reference books for magical Oh, works? no, they were stories. They were just collections of stories. I can't remember any of the stories. I just know, I can remember the illustrations. They stuck with me. I, re I, I remember when I got old enough to have a ticket to the adult library. You weren't you. You couldn't have a ticket to the adult library till you were a certain age, and I got the ticket, and I was very excited. I went into the adult section, which actually wasn't that much bigger than the children's section. So the children's section must have been must have been, you know, it was about the adult section was only slightly larger, and I took out a book and I tried it, and I thought it was awful, and that my mother said to me, "Yes, children's books are much better than adult books." And I thought, right. So I went back to the children's section <laughs> happily. Oh, gosh, but that must have, was it a big disappointment? Because I can, I have sort of similar memories of being, you know, excited about crossing that boundary. I think, well, now I can read anything and everything. And then, yes. you know, thinking, what, yes. what's in this other room? Absolutely. Yes, I think it was a disappointment. Um I mean, now I can look at it and think, well, actually, in many ways, I was already reading adult books, but I didn't think of them as adult books. Um, I'd probably read a lot of Jane Austen by that time. Um, and I know I read Lord of the Rings at about age 12, 13 but I thought that, you know, I thought of these books as just good books. Yeah. I didn't really think of them as adult books. But I'm curious about whether you read uh, Lord of the Rings before or after you'd been reading the Narnia books and whether you drew any parallels in those stories or preferred one to the other or if they were just separate books you loved. I don't think I really related them. They were just books. I had no idea that Tolkien and Lewis were friends or anything like that. I just thought of them as different books, different worlds. I don't think Tolkien, I mean, obviously he, he had been a big success, but we're talking about 1971, 72. So he wasn't that well known 
like he, he wasn't the phenomenon he is now. Mm. And I know that my English teacher, we must have had a, le a lesson when we were just supposed to read, to get us into reading books. And I brought my Tolkien. And you were supposed to go up to the front of the class and show the teacher what you were reading. And I presume being able to talk about it sort of coherently to prove you were actually reading it. <laughs> um, and I can remember him looking at his book, Lord of the Rings, very, in a very puzzled way and saying, is it about circuses? <laughs> and I was like, no, it's not. <laughs> I don't know where he got that from. Um, he was a very nice teacher. I don't remember his name. He was a lovely teacher, but I think probably not a great reader himself. That's, I will never be able to forget that. Rings, <laughs> not about circuses. <laughs> not about circuses, no. <laughs> but I wonder whether, I don't know if, you know, things have changed, but to have a teacher who is encouraging reading, but he hasn't necessarily, you don't feel as though they've necessarily read all the books in the world and they can be curious and they can ask you questions about it. I think that must have been a, a powerful thing that you're not sort of someone is secure enough in their authority to be able to to let you know something they don't when you're a child i think he was a lovely teacher i haven't thought about him for a long time he was he was very good at explaining grammar and i think that was when he was on a sort of on safe ground mm. um he was probably more an Ang english language teacher than an english literature teacher but it sort of i suppose what it did was reinforce this idea that reading was kind of my world and it was sort of a place where I felt very confident. I didn't really expect much input at this point from outside. I know my parents must have encouraged me to read, as I say, and they must have bought me the Lewis books. But the sort of period of my childhood that can, I can remember, I don't remember them really talking to me much about books or suggesting books. I was sort of... You know, I felt I knew what I needed in the book line and I didn't really, um, I didn't really, ex no, I didn't expect anyone to guide me. I was sort of off on my own journey, I think. And were there any points in life where you met people that you, where you wanted to share books and stories with them and people who felt had a similar connection to you? Has it always been your world and something quite intimate and... <sighs> A little bit private. I would love to be able to say yes. I shared this this reading with other people. I think those moments were quite rare. I can remember at university, um, I had a friend who was doing science a science degree, but his real love was painting. He was sort of half on the way to being an artist, but he was really his his family were all about art, the way my family were about books. So I can remember him. I, I must have lent him The Wizard of Earthsea, I think, by Ursula Le Guin. And he got quite excited about it. I don't think it really took in a way. I think he was about art and that was it. We also went to London at some point and saw, I suppose, at the Barbican, Henry the Fourth, Part One, or Henry the Fourth, Part Two. Whereas I'd been brought up in a family that was that was very sort of focused on Shakespeare in many ways. He hadn't. He'd been brought up in this painting family, and I can remember him seeing seeing Falstaff, 
and in the interval turning to me and saying, he's very dreadful, the old man, isn't he? And I thought that was lovely. That was sort of... And also what it must be like to see Shakespeare without any preconceptions. Because mm. I'd been, always been told by my mum, who was an English teacher and who loved Shakespeare, you know, Shakespeare is the English writer. You know, you must revere Shakespeare. And what he has to say is the last word on everything, which I, I don't think is entirely true. When you went and sat and watched the Shakespeare play, you sort of were in this mindset, I must revere this, I must revere... To be able to sort of just watch it with no preconceptions at all. I thought it was very... I was rather envious, really. Yeah. It's difficult, isn't it? Because I think, you know, yes, of course I understand why, you know, he commands so much reverence and those stories stay with us and we revisit them and we rework them, we talk about them, but just be entertained by them and lose yourself in them and choose to experience one for the first time not knowing what's going to happen. Yes, I think there's a lot in that. Uh, A friend of mine who's an expert on Coleridge talks about... Coleridge had this, this expression, I think, a film of familiarity. I think that covers a lot of things. Shakespeare, particularly, we've got all of other people's opinions, a sort of gloss of other people's opinions and and, and sort of reverence and everything. It'd be lovely to just sort of scrape that away and just be present with just the play or the book. I often think of a bit in The Pursuit of Love by Nancy Mitford, where... Linda, the flighty heroine, is sort of embarking upon her second kind of grand passion um, after a sort of dreadful... I don't think she's divorced from... That's it because she's at lunch with her in-laws, who were still then her in-laws. And Christian, this terribly clever fellow who's a communist and everyone's a bit nervous of him, he starts telling Linda about a production of Hamlet that he's just seen. And she is enraptured and he's so passionate and um, thrilled and giddy. And her in-laws are being quite sneery and saying things like, well, that's not my idea of a Polonius, and sort of projecting all of this kind of what we're supposed to think about Shakespeare on it. And it's this really brief evocation of, you know, that sort of, I think, quite heavy, sort of like turgid, you know, the reverence we talked about, and then someone's genuine passion and excitement and seeing it for the first time and sharing that joy. Yes, absolutely. A friend of mine, um, sorry, this just reminded me, a friend of mine, when I was about in my 20s, and her husband, they'd lived in Leeds, and her husband was just appalled to learn that I hadn't yet seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail. So he more or less acted the whole thing out for me, and it was hilarious. And then I saw the film, and it wasn't half so funny. <laughs> so I always think of his as the definitive version. <laughs> <laughs> 
so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We'll be back with Susanna soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. I've chosen Pour Me, A Life by A.A. Gill, a memoir that is desperately painful, uncompromisingly honest, funny and full of love. It has taught me so much about writing and journalism, and also about faith and how we ask for help. It's rightly very difficult to read at points, but it is also a very hopeful book. Pour Me, A Life is published by WNN and out now. Now back to Susanna. Obviously, the last 18 months, almost two years now, has been quite strange and bewildering for everyone. And I know that plenty of, you know, critics and readers have made the point that it's so very nice, sort of eerily prescient. I was wondering about other books where that you feel have been a, a useful and, and sensible and comforting reflection of being a a little more isolated, sort of physically or mentally, whether you felt moved to go off and read the plague or reread the plague, which um I think lots of people bought the plague. I'm not sure how many went <laughs> up and actually read it. I wasn't I wasn't in the least bit tempted. I think you sort of you sort of put your finger on it when you said that for me the act of reading has this sort of solitary it's kind of what I used to do in in solitude and that it's just the act of reading and sort of being able to escape out of any situation including isolation. Perhaps I should have given Piranesi some books to read. Oh, but what would they? Would would you be inventing the books within the book, or are there books that you would like to retrospectively? I don't. I think I would have to think about that very, very carefully. There was the only book that I can think of that's immediately coming to mind that I loved. That was a book about somebody being on their own was a book I read as a child called Charlie by Joan Robinson or Joan G. Robinson. I can't quite remember. She was a she was a children's writer that I was that was around quite a bit. And she she wrote about this girl Charlie who's a bit of a tomboy and she gets sent away to an aunt. She's living with one aunt. I can't remember, it's one of these, the parents around to the picture, I can't remember where her parents are. And she gets sent away for the summer to another aunt, but when she gets there, the aunt's not there. She's not in the house. She's clearly gone away. And so in this sort of feeling of not, of, you know, nobody wants her, she strikes out in this, and she's about sort of 10, maybe. 
she strikes out on her own and starts, because it's hot summer, she starts sleeping in this chicken house that she finds in a field. And it's just about this sort of short week of her living on her own and all the ups and downs. And it's absolutely beautifully written. And just she's such a funny, brave, sad, adorable character. But she sort of, she very much, the writer very much gets the idea of her seeing everything from a different side now. She's sort of watching life but not being quite part of it you know when you were a child and you ran away all those moments when you sort of ran away for half an hour and nobody ever noticed but in that half an hour you did have that sort of strange feeling didn't you of kind of looking at it I'm no longer part of this world kind of thing and I think that that goes with being someone who is in the world of books I think that running away is very much part of being a reader of stories and a teller of stories because that's you know it's the the girls and boys and books who have adventures and that's the best way to start an adventure I think did you did you make that connection were you driven to do it in search of adventure or just I think know, it was being usually because I was just being a child yes yes I think just sort of cross with everybody is the way it usually starts I think no it was that was it was a great book Charlie I once gave it to my husband when he was very, very ill. You know, when you're ill and you think, oh, what can I read? What can I read? And I said, try reading that. And he adored it. Running away and books, the connections, discuss. No, you're definitely right. I mean, it was definitely, books were definitely a kind of, they were my my safe place. But it's, you know, every time it's a way of running away, isn't it? And the, the children's books I loved the most the ones that seem to have a very real understanding of the gap between how you are treated and what is expected of you and how you really feel being yeah. sort of so far ahead of that. Yes, this idea of children's books reassuring you, establishing your own identity as quite different from your parents and your family, that there is a part of you and, and that is you and... It's separate because in children's books, as you say, there's always this uh, disconnect between the way people are, children are treated and who they really are. And they um, I haven't thought of that. It does. It does sort of reassure you. Yes, you are not. You are different from the people around you. You are, you have your own identity. I was thinking, I guess, about you know Shakespeare again and who he was presented to you as and who he is, but also the breadth of his storytelling and that no one has ever confined Shakespeare to a single genre and that you're a writer, I suppose, I think of as someone who embraces the historical and the magical in a way that Shakespeare did. And I meant to ask you and forgotten you got distracted about if there is a particular Shakespeare play that you love or connect with or find something in that you weren't expecting? The question of whether you find in Shakespeare something you weren't expecting, I think that's a process that I expect to go on and on because I suppose he's the one of the writers above all where if you keep going back, there's more stuff to find. So, yes, I, I would definitely... I mean, I would think 
The Tempest is a favourite play, though that's kind of a bit um, to be expected. There's a magician in it. And I think King Lear as well, awful as it is. I think um, any any play where someone goes mad, <laughs> I'm always up for that. <laughs> Maybe that comes back to the idea of isolation and confinement. But I know oh, he's, sort of, he's out in the world, but he's in his a world of his own making. Yes. And I think there's a speech, I'm not going to get this terribly right, but there's a speech that he makes to Cordelia, which is a very lockdown speech about, you know, we we will talk to each other and we will tell each other our memories and we will, even though we're here in this dreadful place, it'll just be you and me and we'll create this world which is sun and light and other people won't be able to get to us, which is a that that's that's a fairly lockdown kind of thing. We the, just the two of us can create a world, regardless of what's outside. Sort of strangely comforting, I think, because that I think that idea appeals to a lot of people. It also does sound a bit terrifyingly political, um, which I know is a very obvious route to go down. But you think, oh, people have always been quite awful and quite excluding and quite wanting to go off and yes be on their own i mean you you have to unpick it a bit i mean one of the things it's saying is that love is not particularly dependent on what's going on outside mm. and love being able to love each other that is a you know that is presumably one of the greatest sources of comfort they can be and we always have that option to love each other but there's also there's also a negative side of that, which is that I suppose that we we just sort of do live then completely in a fantasy world, which probably not such a good idea. Then it's interesting and moving and unusual. This idea of sort of you know a family love and a love that's not conditional and it doesn't have the same sort of dramatic shape perhaps as romantic love. I know, that doesn't really work for Leah, I know, because his. Uh... <laughs> His affections did sort of fluctuate, but... Yeah, well, yes. Like... Yes, he wasn't an ideal father, perhaps. No. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I see what you mean. Yes, f- familiar, it doesn't... There's a sort of inbuilt drama to romantic love. Mm. You know, you see someone, is he, she going to like me? No, they don't. Oh, no. And then, oh, yes, they do. And it's sort of, it's there. Whereas one hopes that isn't built into family love. Do you have any favourite romantic heroes and heroines? And I was wondering as well whether that's changed, if there's anyone that you found sort of very appealing or were horrified by as a younger reader and now you feel differently about them and their actions? Um, The romantic books that I've read, largely Austen, I guess. Mm. But I I like her heroines... I like their practical side as much as anything. They aren't very, I mean, other than Marianne in Sense and Sensibility, they're not very romantic. They're sort of, well, this has happened and I have to make the best of it. They're they're very practical people. They fall in love, but they place place a huge uh, value on feminine friendship as well. It was very much that sort of thing I was trying to to um, to do with Arabella Strange in Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell to have a sort of a heroine who is 
in love and loved, but also a very practical, sensible person, unlike the men who are kind of rushing around getting histrionic all over the place. Um, <laughs> sorry, this isn't very, this is probably not very romantic. But in answer to your question about a, a kind of a hero or a heroine that I've gone off, I would say definitely Lord Peter Whimsey, ah. uh, who I loved. My mum was a big fan, I think still is, of the Dorothy L. Sayers books. And in many ways, that I find them very, very alluring. They're very well-constructed detective novels. But I think I found him in a, as a child, I found him sort of dashing and clever and kind of, you know, he always knew the best food to eat and he always knew the best brandy to have and he always knew the best music to play. And now I just think, oh, who cares? You know, I just find him very irritating, I think. Which is a shame because I do, I do as detective stories, I do quite like them. But I, you kind of think, well, there's lots of different music. He doesn't know just the, just the music he knows isn't the best music. And he only knows all these things. He's got masses and masses of money, which she <laughs> kind of tries to, she sort of tries to um, have him make fun of himself. But it doesn't really work because you know that she's sort of admiring him too. No, I definitely went off him. That's interesting, isn't it? Because I do think that it's so... There are fewer things less appealing than sort of a lack of curiosity and lack of flexibility and kind of emotional and mental agility. And I suppose that's what all of those Austin heroines do have, that they are saved by their sense of humour, that they can be... They have romantic urges, but they're sort of funny and pragmatic. And the more... Because I read those books I think when I was sort of 10 11 12 ish and I just loved them and I was really delighted and surprised by how funny they were and I kind of I was very invested in in the love stories because you know I I think I had a quite a romantic sensibility then and only now do I begin to appreciate these were socially accurate they were about a time when it was, you know, a business decision as well as yeah, a yeah, love decision absolutely. that these, this was the only option that, that they had. I don't, I can't presume to know much at all really about her romantic life and her yearnings and how important it was for her to support herself and how unusual it was for her to be kind of participating economically. Yes. And, you know, it was out of necessity, but also, you know, in a way that now when we think about our relationship with, you know, creative work and careers and all the rest of it, we can, there are plenty of other people for us to look at and see how it's done and how it's not done. And she wasn't watching Jackie Collins, the lady boss story, which I enjoyed very much. (laughs) But I think one of the things I get from her books is that women at that time, they did a lot, you know, they ran their households and this was not a small thing if you had to have three or four servants. And you did, in a way, have to have them because everything was manual work. There were no washing machines. There were no hoovers. There were no dishwashers. Everything had to be done by hand. So the economy was that you you lived in these 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 groups of people and, mm. and so there were enough hands to do the work. But if you were the woman managing... You were a mid. If you're a middle class woman, then you were, you were managing quite a few people, and you were having to get in 
food that would last through the winter there's no refrigeration or you were having to work out well, how long will this meat last and in other words they weren't sort of just sitting around doing nothing they were they were working so she didn't perhaps have any a model of an author a woman author but she did have plenty of models i imagine of women just sort of getting stuff done mm. and of running running quite complicated operations. Yes, that's a really, really good point. You know, now you'll be project managers. (laughs) Yes, exactly. They weren't paid for it, but their reward was that they lived a comfort... If they could make their households work properly and their social lives work, then they they lived as, you know, as comfortable lives as you could at that point. But, I mean, obviously I'm talking about middle-class women. Yeah. I did um, this summer. I reread all of the um, A Diary of the Provincial Lady books, and I just love all of those bits where she talks about the "I must have a word with Cook. It's going to go badly. I don't really want to." <laughs> what, what, what period are they? So I guess they start off um, Edwardian, maybe, or sort yeah. of just post Edwardian. And I think the last one is, gosh, it must be. I'm sure it's the Second World War. Right. when they finish because that's quite pandemic reminiscent as well because she's desperate to get some sort of you know good worthy useful war work and there's nothing to be had and everyone she knows is sort of asking her and being told to sit tight and wait yes one of the things that i'm reading at the moment because i'm i'm investigating 19th century researching 19th century yorkshire i'm reading Anne lister's diaries who was i mean she's gentleman jack from the television series and they're they're a lovely read very very easy read it gets a bit complicated because she knows lots of she has quite complicated social life she knows lots of people it's perfectly true all these women sort of seem to fall in love with her she had absolutely no problem so it's a very kind of different view of the early 19th century than the one we're used to. One of the things about reading books for research is you're looking for completely um, the... You're, you're looking for something completely different than most of the people who read it. She's she's describing these passions that she has for these women and the, their passions they have for her and all the ups and downs of this romantic life. But what I'm mainly interested in was sort of where she bought her clothes and... Mm. Um, where she borrowed her library books and what and the coaches were going from Halifax to where exactly? So it's a very odd way of reading a book, but she did. She's so stunningly honest about relationships. I I suppose because she didn't have a lot of choice. She, now she was someone I suppose who didn't have a model. She didn't have a model of of two women being in love she sort of had to construct her own life and she's sort of she's talking about these these young women that she gets a passion for and she thinks they're so wonderful and then she realizes actually they're rather dull and boring and she kind of goes off them and it's um and then she she thinks this this lover that she's been having an affair with for for a long long many many years she thinks oh I'll, I'll wait for her she's had to get married but I'll wait for her and then a bit later, she says, no, I won't. That's too much trouble. I'll, I'll look for somewhere. But it's just, <laughs> it's so, it's so kind of, kind of not the ideal and so messy. 
and how mm. and so much how romantic life really is. Yeah. It's unromantic romantic life. I've never I've always wanted to read those diaries, but now I really, really want to read them. I love the idea of the the messy reality. Yeah. And I think that's so interesting as well that she was the complicated aspect of having to invent your own trajectory because you can't model it, but also the freedom that comes with making it up. Susanna, I'm so sad I could honestly talk to you about books for um the rest of twenty twenty one, but I know you've got things <laughs> that's to do. That's a sweet thing to say. <laughs> really could. Um but sadly it is it looks like we're we are running out of time. So just before we go, I would love to know books that you would love to give to people for Christmas and any books that you'd love to receive for Christmas? Well, I will probably give my mum some Anthony Horowitz. Anthony Horowitz, who wrote Foyle's War, Mm. has been doing sterling work, just writing a series of books which are just, they're really classic detective novels. And I think the first one is called The Word is Murder. And because that, I know that that's what my mum likes. Is She's in her 80s. So, so that, will, that will do for her. For my husband, I will probably uh, give him Chris Packham's his memoir, which I think is called Fingers in the Sparkle Jar, because the idea, I think, of someone writing a memoir about someone with a rather different take on life, someone with a rather different sort of brain writing a memoir, I think, uh, is very interesting. And I think it will definitely please my husband for a book that I want myself I have no idea what I'm reading at the moment and enjoying a lot is Elizabeth Costova's The Historians which is a version of the Dracula legend but done sort of with real historians researching it which is a very strange and novel idea so I'm enjoying that oh well actually I'm looking for a Christmas present for someone and stuck for an idea for her and it has to be a book and that might be the perfect one so thank you so much oh well that's good Susanna it's been such a pleasure I can't thank you enough I have loved this conversation um make sure that perhaps um your mum and your husband don't listen (laughs) oh oh I didn't think no um I can I don't think my mum will listen she wouldn't she hasn't got the patience for a long thing, which when you're in your middle mid eighties, you, you're allowed not to. So that's uh, I don't I don't think I shall sh- I shouldn't worry on that score. So that'll be fine. <laughs> Sorry, I just sort of suddenly thought, oh, but I'm sure. I'm sure no, I, I, I never even thought of that. Oh, never mind. Never mind. I really enjoyed it, Daisy. Thank you so much. Huge thanks to Susanna. Berenese is out now, and I can't think of a lovelier world to escape to. You can follow us at YBooked on social media, look out for book recommendations, words of wisdom from old guests and occasional shelfies. We love it when you share the podcast with your friends and thank you so much to everyone who has left us a five-star review. It helps other people to discover us and their new favourite books. You can find a list of all the books mentioned by Susanna at acast.com slash booked and check out her selection in our bookshop at bookshop.org. 
We'll be back next week. For now, I leave you with this from Stephen Sondheim. Two of the hardest words in the English language to rhyme are life and love. All words. See you next time. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.